We are citizens of change, and this is our podcast. Created for you by media, communication and sociology at University of Leicester. Climate change is a very immediate thing that's happening today in flooding and droughts and famine. And we saw that at COP27. COP27 was in Egypt, and it was very much a, uh, a place where the global south or the developing, developing countries were, were there saying, you know, we are, we are like dying because of this, and it's time to take action. I think it's just making the most of like media online as well, like how you can spread the information better to like the younger generation. Yeah, of course we can all do better, but um, they should stop by showing us the real climate change and not what they want us to know. Yeah, I think first thing is to spread awareness, like get people to know about it, like, you know, knowledge. It's about translating how it's going to affect people a little bit more and being a little bit more honest. So, hello everybody. Uh, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Tor Clark. I'm Associate Professor in Journalism. I'm Tim Neff. I'm a lecturer in Journalism. I'm Angela and I'm a final year journalism student. And I'm Ayan Artan and I'm a final year journalism with creative writing student. So we've, we've come here today to have a little bit of chat about the, um, the climate crisis um, with um, Tim as our expert, as he has just recently come back from um, working for a fortnight at COP27. So um, uh, let's, uh, let's start with a few questions for Tim, shall we? Mm-hmm. Who wants to, to kick off? Um, I wanted to know... First off, a little bit about your background, because obviously we know you as a professor. Mm -hmm. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about your research and why climate change is such a like a big part of your focus? Absolutely. I you know, my my background is in journalism. So I covered um, all sorts of journalistic stories, did a lot of editing for many, many years and then uh, got into the academic world. So when when it came time to do a big research project, you know, obviously my focus is on media. And I wanted to look at something that's a very, very important, crucial problem uh, in which media have an important role to play. So climate change was kind of a natural thing that popped onto my radar. And, and my question around it really was about media's role in helping people engage with the problem, because at the end of the day, climate change has a lot to do with different power differentials in society, who's affected by it in different ways. Um, and then who has the ability to speak about climate and media play a very important role in that. And so that's why I got, I was drawn to this topic. And, uh, that's why that ultimately is why I was in Egypt at COP27. Um, so the question I think I have for you is, um, climate change surrounding young people. And I think one of the questions I have is do you think that the media can do more to spread awareness or do you think it's up to young people to address the subject? That's a great question. I think I, I think the answer is both. That has to be a, you know, the one of the big problems with climate change is it's, it's everyone is kind of a stakeholder in this, right? We all are affected by it in various ways. We all have something that we should be doing about it, but it's very difficult to know what exactly that Thing is, and I think that's that's one of the places where media has a very important role to play. Um, <clears throat> not just making us aware of it, and there's been an increasing awareness of it over the years, in recent years for sure, but 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 helping people find a way to connect with it in various ways. And youth have been 
the voices of youth have been raising at a phenomenal level over the past three or four years. You see that at, at these cops at, when you go to these international negotiations from Greta and her school strikes in Sweden. That was a huge catalyst for change. Um, and so, you know, maybe I'll, I'll kick the question back to you. You know, how is it that, that I'm, I'm very curious to find out how you encounter climate change in your media diet, if we can call it that, and, and what you think about it. You know, I, I guess let's just make it a very simple question. Like how what are the messages that you are encountering from the media about climate change? To be completely honest, I think when it comes to like classic media, so like your BBC, your Sky, it's usually this is what's happening. There are negotiations ongoing. Um, there are environmental problems like we've never seen. There are droughts and fires. Um, but a lot of the conversation, at least for me, has been through social media and through a lot of young people trying to understand and sort of try to place context for themselves. Because I feel like, and I think we'll get to this eventually, but I feel like the way that classic media works, if I can call it classic media, is you're given a lot of facts and a lot of information. And sometimes you don't have the context or you don't, you can't express all the nuance in a two-minute piece. Um, so for me, it's been, I learn a lot more on my phone than I would consuming Sky, for instance. Um, and so I think young people have sort of taken it upon themselves to go, hey, I live in Pakistan, and this is what's happening with the floods here. And hey, I'm in Somalia, and there are droughts, and we know it's because of climate change. And I think that sort of allowed us to connect. But that's been my experience. What about you, Anjali? Um, I would say I have quite a different experience to you in a sense where I was out this morning conducting interviews with university students, and I think I found that they necessarily don't feel like they can contribute to the conversation or um, they're not necessarily interested in having a conversation about climate change. I think because it doesn't directly affect them uh, and their own social circle and group of friends. So it's not like in the forefront of their mind. Um, so I, I do think it's interesting in that aspect. And I think that... As young people, we almost tend to find news that we are interested in um, and not necessarily like just what's going on. I don't think we pay attention to what's going on currently. Um, so, yeah, I do think that myself included can probably do more when it comes to actually thinking about climate change and um, its effects. Mm. So. I, I did have a question for you, Tim. Do you think that um, that point that Anjali touched on, where because it feels distant from us, we can't sort of take it as seriously as like a fire in a building on the street we live in, do you think that sort of perceived distance is what's made it so difficult and why it's taken so long for us to take it seriously? Yes, absolutely. That's... that's, that's um it's, climate change is often called a wicked problem. It's one of these problems that's very difficult to see. It's a problem that's very difficult and complex to address. And it takes place over the course of massive over the massive time scales and massive distances. So distance is kind of built into this problem in both spatial terms and temporal terms. 
But it matters. You have to also keep in mind it matters where you are in the world, right? Some places around the world, climate change is a very immediate thing that's happening today in flooding and droughts and famine. And we saw that at COP27. COP27 was in Egypt, and it was very much a uh, a place where the global south or the developing developing countries were were there saying, you know, we are... We are like dying because of this, and it's time to take action. So, at the at that international level, the the, the question becomes, you know, what what does that action look like? It's very difficult when you have nearly two hundred countries involved, all with different interests, all with their own home, you know, private and national uh, interests that they have to push. Um, get them getting them to come together to make to come up with some sort of action on this problem that as you say is a very distant problem for much of the world uh, it brings up um, all of these issues around who has the responsibility to do something who who is being affected at different levels around uh, because of climate change so the 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 issue there is is you know, some some parts of the world just aren't experiencing it quite as acutely as other parts of the world and that's that's a big rights issue and a big power differential at the heart of it and and so from a media standpoint what how would you make this problem more closer to people i mean what does closing that distance look like in media terms we spoke to our community on campus here's what they said uh, my name is mohammed galani um, i'm a third year engineering student okay. returning from placement so when i was on placement we uh, i was with network rail and we had involvement with cop 26 um so they had like the battery train and stuff like that. So I, I've got some knowledge of it, yeah. I think most, the majority of young people have a much better attitude to climate change compared to older generations. Um, but how much of an effect they have on changing things, I don't know. Um, I think it's down to legislation um, and change in government, um, government policies. I don't think uh, you can, you know, media can uh, publish things as much as they want. Um, I don't think they can have enough of an impact there. There needs to be um, at a meaningful level. I, I think they're aware of it, how much of a difference they make in choices they make in their life, I think is questionable. So like things like, oh, using paper straws, it's like trying to save a rainforest by not um, using toothpicks. So I think they're misinformed maybe um, in, in their choices. It's like things like driving, a lot of people don't need to drive but they'll still have a car um, that will make a bigger difference than a lot of the stupid decisions they make not stupid misinformed choices they make Hiya my name's Shamaka Mohammed. I'm a second year medical student at Leicester University and uh, yeah I've never heard about COP but yeah everyone's heard about climate change and like, like it's, it's always in the news like it's always in the back of your mind as well um, I don't know any statistics or like specific details but you know, like things like uh, more extreme weather, like uh, increased water levels, ice caps melting. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, especially if they can somehow get involved with uh, like education or people in charge of education, make it more part of the syllabus. Because again, like it's things that you learn, but you never really learn how bad it is. It's just like a, the idea exists, but they never explain the concept of how actually bad it's getting. Uh, hi, I'm Rodney and I study biological sciences. And I'm Tash and I do biological sciences too. 
Uh, I'm Nicholas and I also do biological sciences. Go <laughs> 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 Don't know what cough is, but not climate change is. <laughs> it's not getting better. Yeah. And fossil Save fuels are causing it. We need to use more renewable energy. That's a good one. I think most people are aware of it, whether they carry something else. Like, I know, like, most of my friends, like, use a recycling bin in their flat. <laughs> well, that's a valid point. No, yeah, that's a valid point. Make, make conscious decisions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think more and more, like, young people care more. Like I, like, I think I think they're more conscious about what they're doing. Yeah, I think it's more of a subconscious one rather than people proactively taking yeah. part and making a difference, I'd say. But I think... Like, you'd rather, you'd use, like, more sustainable alternatives, I'd say. I feel like a lot of the information out there is more catered to an older audience than a younger young generation. I feel like with the younger generations, they need to make more of an effort with actually targeting them because um, I feel like they've got more luck. No offence to old, old people, but they've got more luck with young people if they actually target target them correctly, like with correct compa- correct compa- campaigns and stuff like that. Mm. I think um, celebrities are really helpful, like in promoting it. But I don't think people take them as seriously as like the gov- like if the government would take more action. Yeah. Like I think a lot of people repost things on their stories and stuff of it, but I just feel like Plus it's more of like a, yeah. I don't know to say that you've <laughs> done it, like say that you care about it. Yeah, no, I think it's just making the most of like media online as well, like how you can spread the information better to like the younger generation. Like TikTok's a good one to be fair, like you said. Yeah. Um, just t- picking up that point, that was I was gonna check this in. The media's played quite a role in this country because about um, 10, 15 years ago, the BBC, because it's obliged to cover things in a balanced way, made the decision that it wasn't going to balance um, climate change with climate denial. It was an editorial decision. And it, that was a really big decision for the BBC because it sort of goes against its charter. But you can see why they made it, because the science was overwhelming. And then while Tim was at Sharm el-Sheikh, there was an interview with the, Gar- with the Guardian's environmental correspondent. And the Guardian recently made a decision to stop referring to climate change. And every time they refer to what we might call climate change, now, editorially, they refer to climate crisis. And what that means, those two actions by the media advanced the cause of climate change stroke climate crisis in the minds of the public. And and you could argue that that was the media, that was journalism playing a role in ratcheting this issue further up the public consciousness. So I just wondered what you thought, what role that we think the media has got to play in um, raising awareness and perhaps um, doing something positive about this? I mean, in terms of not as like a journalism student, but as just a consumer, mm-hmm. I feel like it has been interesting to see. Um, I, I watch a lot of like American channels. So like if I want entertainment or I want to see how different issues are being talked about I might go between like CNN and Fox for instance 
And so it has been interesting to see how almost unpolitical an issue it's been in this country a little bit in our media landscape. It sort of feels like an issue that, again, we'll see um, if our experiences are similar, but it seems to be an issue that everyone has acknowledged. And I don't think it matters where you sway almost politically. I do feel like everyone is covering it sort of the same way. Um, and then again, we'll again we'll get to this when we talk a little bit more about COP and what that was like. But I do feel like that is a massive advantage that we have, even if we're not, um, even if we're not people who think we're environmentalists and we're just people who watch the news because everybody consumes news on some level. I think that's deeply, deeply useful because also I think it gets rid of the confusion because if you're an American citizen and it's all politicized and one side is completely denying that there is a crisis going on and it's we see the facts and it's completely against going against that grain and then there's another side that's like we're liberals and to be liberal means to acknowledge these facts that are that exist like this is not a figment a fragment of our imagination i think that has been very useful what about you yeah i do agree with you that it's on like everyone's global conscience the topic of climate change but i think what i do find interesting from speaking to young people actually is um the truth when it comes to climate change and um I think in the way of reporting um, and I found it interesting that a lot of people don't actually believe the reporting surrounding climate change and I think that's actually a question I want to ask you Tim how do you bridge the gap between uh, the media and truth and yeah. what's that's yeah. that's a great question and so we're in this misinformation age right now we're in this era where when misinformation can be published and spread extraordinarily quickly that's 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 almost unprecedented in human history and it's a huge problem again for the same things we've been talking about around climate change it's distant it's difficult to see it makes it very easy for some people to say well it's just not happening or you know how do you know that it's, it's very easy to to, to try to like create a kind of a cloud of uncertainty around it because climate change does have a certain level of uncertainty baked into it. I mean, that's a truth about climate change. We have models showing us what's going to happen and that there's a huge scientific consensus about what's going to happen. But at the same time, we don't know on a day-to-day -day level what climate change looks like. We just can't predict it at that, at that level. So, you know, science is dealing deals with uncertainty and they deal with hypotheses and testing and, and all of that is a very important part of climate change. But again, it's the experience of it that I think that really resonates for most people even more than those scientific facts. So getting back to your question about truth and media, I think that you know most media professionals, Guardian, the BBC, are very, and, and other you know, New York Times and, and, and mainstream media, what they, they have this really important role in a media system. And what you were talking about, um, uh, um, was was really a media system perspective on 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 the discourse around climate change. Those big mainstream legacy organizations have this really important role to play as professional journalists with a dedication to the truth. 
Um, that doesn't mean they always resonate with everyone in a way that would, would get them to act on it. But it does mean that there's this kind of backstop in the media system to say, no, this is the fact about climate change. It's happening. It's human driven. Um, and here's what we, here's the best science. You know, the BBC has um, over and over again really anchored their coverage to the science. That's that's a that's a anchor point for their for their coverage, and that's that's very important. So you're getting you know quality information from the BBC, but you know that doesn't prevent people from you know there are a lot of uh, websites and other uh, publications out there that don't have that dedication to facts that you, that we that we traditionally associate with the media. Um, and getting back to your point about um, the difference between the U.S. and U.K., you you, you really like. That's exactly what my, a lot of my research shows is that climate change remains a very highly politicized issue in the U.S. in a way that it is not here in the U.K. And again, there's all sorts of reasons for that. There's uh, political arenas of decision making are different between the two countries. You know, in the U.S., we have we you know we just had the uh, U.S. House, House of Representatives switch from Democrat to Republican control. Those winds of change sweep the U.S. much more frequently. Although we've had prime ministers definitely who have been falling at a, a, a historically unprecedented rate, but um, but at the same time the, the the existence of large organizations like BBC, publicly funded, huge footprint in the media system with a huge reach across the country that that has they have this powerful ability to keep people more or less on the same page around the facts about something like climate change um and we can there's also you know there's certainly ways we could uh, you know have we should continue to have a critical perspective on that but that is a big difference between the two media systems can we backtrack a little bit because sure. we've sort of um hinted at you being a cop which I mean, mm-hmm. as a journalism student, that's a pretty big deal. So I wanted to know a little bit about how is getting an assignment like that? First mm-hmm. off, tell us how that came about. Yeah. And then second of all, tell mm-hmm. us, um, is it different to covering any other news mm-hmm. event? Um, what does it look like day to day? And could you touch a little bit more on what it felt like? Because I feel like that's quite like an electric environment to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, thank you. So I, w- I was there uh, working with a reporting service called Earth Negotiations Bulletin. And what they do is they go to UN negotiations throughout the year. They're covering um, um, the uh, CBD COP right now uh, in Montreal. Uh, what they do is they go, they're a reporting service. So they're not, they don't call themselves a news organization. They're a reporting service. And they go there and they they, they cover the nego- negotiations and events surrounding the negotiations in a very like neutral um, summary mode. So this is what the delegate from the U.S. said. This is what the delegate from, um, you know, Russia said, et cetera, et cetera, summarizing the, the talks. Now I was there. The COP is a, is the huge climate event of the year that they cover. So I was there. Um, they sent two teams there, and one team was the negotiations team. One team was the side events team. And I was on the side events team working with writers and editors and photographers and videographers to cover all of the stuff happening around the negotiations. And that's a huge part of the atmosphere there, the feel of being at a COP. 
very few people are actually in the room with the negotiators. So you, um, you do see some of that happening. You can be in plenary sessions and see see the, the official statements that people are making. But a lot of what you encounter there is these side events that are happening in hundreds of pavilions in this huge conference area. NGOs, uh, governments, uh, UN agencies are setting up these pavilions to to talk about uh, to have panel discussions, for example, um, show films. It's just every every event you can imagine is going on at these pavilions. So I was going around to these different side events and summarizing things like um, Nicola Sturgeon was at one of the panel discussions at one of the pavilions, and I covered her and some other heads of state uh, talking at that event and writing up summaries of that. So. Uh, on a daily basis. So it's very busy. The work would, would go from the morning, late into night. Um, and the goal there is really to, to produce sort of a public record of, of what's happening, what the discussions are, uh, what the thinking is, and the policies that are being pursued by different governments and agencies around climate change. It was busy. I mean, there were 30,000 people there in the middle of Sharm el-Sheikh. And it was, you know, you know, this year there was, um, there were a lot of concerns around the ability of civil society groups to demonstrate. Um, and typically at a COP, you would have in the middle of it, on the first weekend, you would have a huge civil society demonstration out marching past the venue. This happened in Poland. I was there for that. Happened in Madrid. I was there for that as well. You didn't have that this year. You didn't have these massive demonstrations in the streets. It's it's a different environment um, at, at, at this COP. Um, that um, and then next year we'll be in, in uh, Dubai, and I'm not sure what the what the what the atmosphere will be there. But I do feel like this year this, the civil society was an important part of it. But you didn't have these huge demonstrations that you would have at other COPs. You had a um, you know, youth voices have continued to be very strong, I think, for the past three or four years at the COPS. And, and, and so it was good to see a lot of these side events and a lot of these panel discussions, including youth uh, representatives to say, look, we're the future. Um, it's, it's, you know, you need to take action now because we're the ones inheriting this. Hi, I'm Emily. Um, I'm doing modern languages. Hi, I'm Catalina, and I'm doing modern languages as well. To be honest, I just seen like the news about like how on the summer it reached 40 degrees, and now it's just like really low right now, like minus three, which is really weird. Social media, to be honest. Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, not no one I know is really I mean, interested. Yeah, um, we don't talk about it like a topic on a coffee go, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, sometimes it comes up in a conversation and how like m ways to do it better, like for our con for our planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, of course we cannot do better, but um, they should start by showing us the real climate change and not what they want us to know. Hello, my name's Paulinho. I do aerospace engineering. I've heard about COP, I wouldn't say recently. It's been a while since I've heard about it. It wasn't positive stuff. It was just like governments meeting up, talking about stuff, and then not actually doing anything. They're aware about climate change. I think they care, because I often ask quite pr 
provocative questions about like global warming and climate change. Um, I think climate change is real. Um, I don't like that it doesn't snow in like the winter months anymore um, and it's too cold. I think it's young people who have to take more initiative. Um, I think, yeah, I think everything is initiative. I think journals, journalists could promote initiative, like talk about students or young people who have initiative. So like, we cared a lot more when it was Greta making the noise, but now she's kind of disappeared and we're kind of like, salavi. Hello, my name's Wonderful. I'm studying accounting and finance. Uh, yeah, I've heard of it on the news. Uh, it's not really my interest. Uh, I think they're doing a lot more. Um, it's going everywhere. You can't um, have, you can't put some plastic inside um, a general waste bin without feeling guilty. Do you get what I mean? So everyone knows um, what they need to do. You know, buy an electric car, um, recycle, reuse things, buy reusable products. So we know what to do. Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Patisa Sedindi. I'm doing uh, aerospace. Uh, I'm from Zimbabwe. I think basically uh, what's affecting climate change in the world is basically some of the processes that you know are going on, like you know engineering processes, like you have things like global warming. So I think that's the major impact that uh, causes like you know climate change. I really don't even think like even from like a family perspective, uh, community, even like maybe it's more of like a, a country's problem or you know like uh, nations when they come together but like people themselves don't like really take uh, climate change like you know that seriously I think yeah I think first thing is to spread awareness like get people to know about it like you know knowledge and uh, once people know like what's going on then they'll be able to chip in wherever they can so I think the media should like put more effort into that yeah I think one question I have for you, Tim, mm -hmm. is do you feel that your time there was meaningful or you um, achieved mm -hmm. any objectives that you set out to? Well, it was, it was meaningful on a couple levels. It was meaningful because I, I, I like being part of, you know, helping people understand what, what's happening. Uh, at a, it's an, a very important event, obviously, and it's a an event that's been likened to four-dimensional spaghetti. You have this very complex negotiation process where one thing that's being negotiated is impacting another thing. And it's, it's important to, you know, have a media presence there. And there were th over, I think, 3,000 journalists from around the country there. And we were, our Earth, the Earth, Earth Negotiations Bulletin team was right there in the middle of that me media pavilion. So, like, our office was right next to the New York Times and the BBC was around the corner. It was just people coming and going constantly with cameras and photographers and, and cameras and um, people. And, and, and I was, it was also important for me from another perspective because my research is around climate change and media. So there were people there that I was catching up with, um, the reporters from the AP and BBC that I've talked to before. Um, so that was all, that was, so it was important from on a, on a couple levels for me. As far as like, are we, is this, you know, what is a cop achieving? That's maybe the bigger question here. Like, are we closer to solving this problem? I think yes, but it's a long-term process and it's extraordinarily complex. And so I'll, it's, it's always frustrating at a cop to see very important decisions get pushed off to the next year. 
but that's going to happen because you have so many different interests at stake and so many, um, you know, complex conversations around how to solve this very distant and largely invisible problem. Mm-hmm. Um, have you found any gaps in your research so yeah. far? Or? <laughs> I, I, yeah, there's a lot of gaps in the research. So I do research on media systems um, and th- there's often those media systems are thought of in very national terms. So like the BBC and the Guardian, very, very important. But there's less research on media systems at the local level. And we know that ultimately what has to happen is at the local level. People have to get involved in their communities and start doing stuff to address climate change. So there's a huge, huge gap there to understand what public engagement looks like at the local level and how media play a role in that. Mm. Um, Could you talk a little bit about the politics at play? Because I feel like from the outside, it sort of looks like there are two diametrically opposed groups of people. And one are, again, this might be pessimistic, Mm -hmm. but on one hand, there are countries and world leaders who have stakes when it comes to producing oil Mm -hmm. and who have um, deals that they're trying to negotiate or they're in the midst of a war. And this is the least... To them, it's a long-term thing, and this is the least of their concern. And on the other hand, we have very, very dedicated journalists, researchers, activists. So could you talk um, us through how that manifests when it comes to these negotiations? And is it that clear-cut a, a line? Mm, that's a really good question. Uh, um, I... I don't, it's very difficult to answer that question. It's, I think it's very difficult to draw any sort of clear cut lines with climate change. Um, some of the people that you would think are like very, uh, you would expect to be politically opposed to it often are like, you know, we should do something about it. Um, some people on the conservative side of the spectrum for various reasons, moral reasons, religious reasons, they might, dis- they might say, yeah, it's very important that we're good stewards of the earth. So it's very difficult to make a very clear-cut Republican versus Democrat or left versus right um, division on that. And But you also bring up like fossil fuel interests in the international negotiations. Those are huge. You can think about what happens at international negoti- negotiations around uh, like carbon capital. Who... Who has the massive stores of fossil fuels that can that ultimately might contribute to to climate change? Who's using those fuels at a massive rate? These are all big, big players in the international negotiations because they have huge stocks of carbon capital. They're essentially the big players that have to be somehow have to be at the center of the negotiations. Um, you know, in and in Poland, there was a moment where. Um, Saudi Arabia was very much uh, resistant to um, accepting sci- a scientific report on the importance of um, fossil fuels and the importance of limiting climate um, temperatures to less than two degrees Celsius warming. So the, they can, you know, a, a, the UN process is all based around consensus. So you have to get full buy-in from people to make to take action. So big producers like that uh, can have a huge outsized effect on what ultimately is done. So, you know, I, I don't know. The, the politics of it are... Um, they sound messy. 
they're messy. They're messy. And that, that, I think that's the best way to put it. And, and, but that's not to say that, that those interests can't align in really important ways. If the right sort of language is found and the right uh, uh, kind of buy-in to the ultimate uh, consequences or the ultimate goal, th- th- people can align around that. And so I don't want to say that it's like ho- hopeless because it certainly isn't. And I think there has been progress on this problem. But obviously there needs to be more. Can I just chuck in a sure. quick thing here? Going back to um, the way that the Guardian referred to it as the climate crisis and, and picking up a point you've just made, Tim. One thing that occurs to me, which is quite interesting, is that there's an equation on here about how quickly we act. And we have to act before the temperature goes up beyond a position which makes the inhabitation of this this planet um, difficult. Um, there's been a really good example of this locally uh, recently or in the UK. You may have seen this week there's been a lot of coverage of a plan to build a new coal mine in Cumbria. And that, to me, was the microcosm of the debate. So you had the local mayor on saying we need this coal mine to produce coal and provide jobs locally. So economic benefits now. Mm-hmm. And you then had people with a wider environmental interest saying, we cannot be mining fossil fuels. This is ridiculous. This is going back on all this sort of thing. And it seems that it's if when the debate is cast as economic benefits for people living now against environmental disaster for people in the future, it becomes slightly problematic and easy for people to manipulate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's definitely been um, what it seems, again, as a student and as like a consumer, is it might be a friend's thing. I know that social media sort of has us enamored in our own like communication bubbles, but it does sort of feel like um, after every big conference, well, during the conferences, there is a lot of irritation Mm -hmm. because, again, with... Egypt there was there wasn't as many protests and that obviously has a lot to do with the political context of the country that you're in and the environment that you're in but I feel like what exactly actually came out of this conference and do you think that there needs to be clearer reporting sort of like the work that you were doing because you said it was sort of to keep um, a public record of what happened but I feel like that's sort of drowned out by the two extremes everyone's irritated nobody's talking and what actually happened yeah. so could you give us like yeah. I don't know like a, a dummies or a student's <laughs> guide yeah to I think what came up I think the the one thing that pe- most people point to is coming out of this cop was an agreement to set up a loss and damage fund so this is a fund so this past year um you know, there were devastating floods in Pakistan, uh, Ghana, I believe. Uh, people this this year and in recent years as well, uh, there have been very acute, extreme weather events fueled by climate change. And that has given a lot of impetus for countries experiencing that to say, like, we are being hammered by this right now, and we need funding to, to it's not compensation, it's like we need funding to address these devastating uh, catastrophes. 
So the one thing that's kind of considered a breakthrough from this COP27 was the agreement to establish a loss and damage fund. Um, now, the devil's in the details. So this is another thing that got pushed off to next year. Uh, in, in Dubai, there will be a lot of talk about what does this loss and damage fund look like? Who's paying into it? Where does the money go? All of that stuff has yet to be hammered out. And those will be very, very complex and contentious um, discussions. But that's the, that's, the, that's the bottom line, I think, from COP27. There was a loss and damage fund. Now, there's some people who say, and this, this is part of the four-dimensional spaghetti part of it, some people who are really focused on adaptation to climate change and saying we need more work on adaptation might uh, have criticized the, the shift in focus to loss and damage because it's not necessarily the same thing as adaptation. So, um, you know, this like the, focusing on one thing might draw attention away from another part of this multi-tentacle thing that needs to be achieved. Um, so that, that's, that's the, I, I've heard that criticism, but, you know, at the same time, obviously, there is, you know, countries are experiencing major, major problems right now, and there needs to be action on that. Um, you know, b beyond that, it was, you know, the cop was, this cop was called an implementation cop. And it was like, what, that's like, how could you come up with a, a less, a more boring uh, slogan than an implementation cup? So it was, it's, it, it was kind of a, a step in, a very important step, but a step in a huge long-term uh, effort. Uh, next year will be very interesting as well, because there will be this thing called the global stock take, which is countries will get together and go, okay. We passed the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. We're supposed to be holding temperatures to under 2 degrees Celsius average, hopefully under 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, average warmth, warming. Um, so we've had now a number of years since then. Where are we at? We, you've, you've pledged to reduce submissions or mitigate it in this way, adapt in this way. All the nations will be um, assessing their performance uh, and this is the first of the global stock takes post Paris. So that will be a very big moment. And that will be one of the major uh, storylines you see coming out of that. It's like, how are we doing? And, you know, how do you think we're doing? <laughs> um, I think one of the questions that I've, I think is quite important to ask is, where does the responsibility lie mm. in fixing the issue? And is it fair to kind of band countries together and be like you have to pay a relief fund to this certain country when there's for example um like a huge manufacturer such as china mm -hmm. who might contribute more mm -hmm. to the problem than smaller countries so how do you deal i think with with that yeah no you've, you've hit the nail right on the head that is that is the um that is maybe maybe the core line that actually runs through the climate change debate and action at the international level is this idea that it's ba it's baked into all of the UN processes around climate change the notion of common but differentiated responsibility so everyone has a responsibility to do something about climate change it's a global issue and we're all contributing to it to some degree but that responsibility is differentiated. Some, some, essentially, some countries are more responsible for it than others. Um, and so there's a lot of the negotiations happen around what, how, to implement, how to apply that common but differentiated standard into everything that you do. 
you know, typically, typically it comes down to uh, developed countries um, need to buy, to pr- contribute more to these funds to help just transition to cleaner renew, uh, cleaner energy sources. They need to pay more into loss and damage funds and things like that. Um, and the developing world, not so much because they're the ones who are really on the front lines of it and largely are not responsible for it, right? We are citizens of change. We're diverse in our makeup, but united in our ambition to pursue knowledge that has the power to transform. If you're interested in using your voice to change the world, study media and communication at University of Leicester. Click the link in the show notes to find out more. I'm Zoe, I do criminology. I'm Shelley, I do criminology. I'm Izzy and I also do criminology. Um, I know a lot of it, it's like, I know King Charles is quite a big supporter of it as well. But obviously he wasn't allowed to go this year due to becoming king. Um, I think it was definitely a cause that needed to be addressed, so good initiative. Um, I don't know too much about it, but I've heard bits about it and I think it's definitely something that will have a long-term benefit if it gets I definitely think it's something that the younger generation uh, care more about rather than grandparents and great-grandparents. So. Um, my friends are aware and a lot of them do care and go to marches and stuff like that, but my family, I don't think, are as aware as my friends are. There's a lot about it in journalism. So with people like Greta, um, I can't remember her surname now, but where she's quite active, that gets picked up a lot by journalists. So it is quite a widely known thing that probably young people can do more in terms of like protests and getting involved. I would definitely say that young people should be doing more towards it. Journalists obviously do do a lot, but it needs to be more spread by younger generations. I think there could be more from both sides. Well, like journalism does do a lot, but um, I think they could. There's always more someone could do, and the younger generation also should step up and do more as well. So, hi, I'm Connor, and I'm studying physiotherapy. I have heard about climate change, yeah. Um, which you want me to tell you about it, um, what are my thoughts on it. Um, so, I think it's absolutely terrifying. Um, and I don't know, definitely don't know what to believe with it. Um, I'm not on social media, but um, I've got some friends that actually work in that sort of industry. Um, one's at the Imperial College London, and I talked to him about it quite a lot. And I'm, and from what he's told me, it's like we're past the point of no return nearly. It's not about if it's going to get bad, it's about how bad it's going to get. And I think that's quite a scary thing to think about. Um, but I also don't believe that um, no matter how... It's going to have to get pretty bad for people to actually do something about it. Because I know myself, I don't do things that I probably could and should do. Um, just because we live in a society where everything's so easy and it's quite hard to... Um, come to terms with doing things that are maybe right but a little bit harder to do um, so like I do I, I watch the news and that kind of stuff and as I said I've got I've got friends that study that kind of thing and I would speak to them about it I just feel um, with social media I don't trust a lot of it and you know there's a lot of false information out there um, so yeah that's how I sort of and then it's obviously quite evident in the way the world is sort of 
changing at the minute that something's not right. So yeah, it's not. About, I don't feel it's about spreading the awareness because I think everyone knows about knows about it, but it's about it's about translating how it's going to affect people a little bit more and being a little bit more honest because it's okay saying look this is what's going to happen but in our world we're so protected especially western culture that we don't really see that much um, or feel that much and i feel like we also live in a in a belief that if it doesn't affect us personally then we don't need to do anything about it just sort of bury our heads in the sand kind of thing um so yeah for me it's not about spreading the word it's about making it relatable to everyone And you know, and then there's there's a, a you know this debate around you know the moving to renewable energy. Like there are countries that are still developing, and and you know, to what extent can we limit them? <laughs> should they should they be limited from developing, uh, industrializing just the way that the the West or the global North has been industrializing for the past 150 years? Is that something that they should be uh, prevented from doing? Is that that's doesn't doesn't seem very just? Yeah. I think that was something else that I, I wanted to like ask you about because it does seem like the conversation has been pretty pretty Eurocentric in terms of consequence, in terms of, again, who takes blame. So do you think these global coming together as these big conferences, do you think that sort of levels out the imbalance in whose narrative you focus? Or do you think that the power differentials between Europe and America and the rest of the world, essentially. Do you think they still play out on that global scale? Yeah, they certainly still play out on that global mm-hmm. scale. There, there's, uh, you know, they do so much to try to level the playing field there. But you just look at it just, just, just from my own experience being there, and you know, I, anyone who'd go there would notice that most of what you're hearing are people talking in English, and the largest contingents are coming from the global north, the Western countries. You know, the U.S. contingent, the EU contingent, people from the U.K. Those are the people that are there that are, have the capability to um, send huge numbers of negotiators and technical teams and 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 civil society groups also to a, to a cop to get in there and have an effect on the process. So the, just from a very basic level of like how many people can you, can your country afford to send to one of these things, there's a power differential there uh, that's tough to get around. But, you know, they, there are things that, you know, the cops, uh, uh, they alternate from year to year. The ones will be in the developed world and one will be in the developing world. This was the developing world uh, cop. So that does just the location of where a cop happens can raise the profile of um, of certain regions that typically are not do not have as high a profile. And this one very much rose the profile of Africa. A lot of the side events I went to were around Africa and um, what needs what's happening there and what needs to what needs to take place to uh, to address climate change in Africa. Um, I think. A good leading question, actually, to mm-hmm. ask would be, where do you foresee the future uh, of the discussion around climate change going? Mm-hmm. Just uh, because there's just so many like different components, power dynamics at play. So yeah, that's I I, I hesitate to look into the crystal ball there because I think it's so. Uh, 
<laughs> it's the future is so uncertain. You know, one thing we know is the temperatures will, for some period of time, continue to rise. Uh, there's, you know, carbon doesn't remove, doesn't leave the atmosphere that quick. So we're continuing to add to it now, today, and that will linger for some period of time. Even if we get to a net zero carbon future, uh, the carbon we have in the atmosphere now will continue to have an effect. You know, there... <sighs> I think the conversation um, increasingly has to be about these power imbalances. I think it is now, and I think that um, that's good, but I think that that there needs to be more attention paid to <clears throat> all of the ways that power imbalances uh, affect the ability of people to speak for the climate, which is a Maxwell Boykoff um, book, uh, Who Speaks for the Climate. I think that's an important question that we will continue to ask and hopefully we have new sort of forms of media and, and more interventions, particularly at the local level, um, that can engage more people in, in, in the search for solutions around it. Mm. Um, in terms of impartiality, I think one of the things every budding journalist hears a lot is be as impartial mm. and as fair-minded mm. and open to discussion as you possibly can. Um, and we sort of touched on it at the beginning about the way that a lot of the media, at least in the UK, have sort of almost put that to bed when it comes to the climate crisis. So could you talk to me a little bit about the, the actual production of news mm -hmm. and what our newsrooms could do to make sure that we make that information not only as entrenched in the science as possible, mm -hmm. but accessible as well? Yeah. Another. That's a great question. You know, so much of the conversation around journalism and climate change has shifted into, I think, in the past probably three to four years, increasingly thinking about it in terms of hopeful and fearful messages. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like consideration about, you know, if you just focus on the science and you focus on the facts, you will probably tend to produce more kind of messages of fear and concern. Because it's concerning, right? There are like major floods happening and that's concerning. And the science right now is saying, yeah, temperatures are rising and they're going to continue to rise for some time. What do we need, you know, time is running out. Those are all sort of fearful messages. But there's another side of the debate that's like, well, maybe we need less of that type of reporting. We need more kind of these stories of hope and inspiration, right? To get people feeling like they're, they're empowered and they can make a difference in it. That's sort of, uh, that's a debate around like the literary aspects of journalism you can kind of think about. Um, and, and I think that's really important to think about that, about that, about that. but at the same time, uh, professional journalism just doesn't create messages out of whole cloth. There's a whole prop news production processes, funding mechanisms, uh, a whole media system you have to think about that, that plays a huge role in whether fearful or hopeful messages are produced in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I think that we need to talk more about, from a media perspective, we need to talk more about the ways we can get funding for news organizations so that they can cover climate change with a great deal of focus in all of its complexity, um, truthfully and accurately and, and all of that. It probably takes an entire media system to do that, but we need to think about mechanisms um, uh, you know, is is commercial revenue really the best way to fund a, a, a media system? You know, the U.S. media system is hyper-commercial. 
Um, the UK also has a high degree of commercial, uh, large number of commercial media outlets as well. But they also have these outlets like publicly funded BBC again. The Guardian has a trust fund uh, type of, of mechanism of, of funding. Those can play important roles in and, and aiding aiding news organizations to put a focus on a story that maybe doesn't sell uh, as many copies of a newspaper as like the latest kind of shocking crime or royal news or something like that. Yeah. Um, to sort of expand on that a little bit, do you believe that the, it's not just the language that's changed? I think, again, to take the U.S. as an example, just because I think the, the differences are more obvious mm -hmm. between the U.S. and our system. Do you think that, for instance, deplatforming climate change deniers mm -hmm. is useful? Because mm -hmm. then we get into a very tricky place of freedom of speech yeah. and that kind of stuff. So do you think it is useful to deplatform people who are going against granular facts? And, or do you think that that ends up actually alienating a lot of consumers and people who would watch the news and don't feel their views represented? Mm -hmm. It's a huge debate. Um, so, I mean, my concern would be like who gets to decide who gets deplatformed. And, you know, to some extent, you, I mean, you, you want a media system with a diversity of views in it. And, you know, people who are say, no, we shouldn't take action on climate change, there should be outlets for them to, to have their views out there. I don't agree with that viewpoint, but I wouldn't want to say that, no, you can't say that. You know, I think that that's, that gets us into a problematic, particularly when platforms are increasingly owned by, you know, large mega private corporations. So do we want, you know, Elon Musk to decide who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak on Twitter? At the same time, misinformation is a huge problem and we can't just ignore it. But I think that there are ways to address it that aren't talked about as much, which is, for example, the economic underpinnings of misinformation. People aren't doing misinformation just for kicks. Some people might. But some, some, the larger um, efforts around misinformation have economic motives behind it, right? There, there, are, there are economic benefits you can reap by uh, sowing, you know, bad information and, and, you know, is selling merchandise. I mean, Alex Jones and his, and his lawsuit in over Sandy Hook, right? He, he was on the hook for like a billion dollars in damages there. That's not, he also made a lot of money. He sells merchandise, right? And so that's, that those, those are aspects of the problem of misinformation that need to be talked about more. I would say, I think deplatforming is a rather blunt uh, intervention, but, and I wouldn't say that it's nothing that you can't, it's something that you should never do, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of other questions around that. It's not a simple decision at all. Uh, you know, so, I mean, what do you think? Throw it back to you. Is it deplatforming? Do you just like cut off the mic or? Um, I don't believe in deplatforming. I think everyone has a right to voice their opinions. Um, so yeah, that's just my basic thoughts on it. What do you think, Ian? I think that, I mean, I'm my mother's daughter, so I think that you're free to say what you please, but I don't think that you're free from the consequences of that speech. So I, I really liked the fact that you focused on 
sort of trying to get to the economic gain behind the disinformation because I think that would actually, if it hurts your pocket, it's going to hurt you, period. So I think that's actually far more useful. And I do think that with social media, it's not, it's not going to go away. So I feel like if Sky don't give you a, a, somewhere to speak, Twitter will. Do you know what I mean? So I think that isn't, it isn't as useful a tool as I think it could have been once before social media. So I think fines, counteracting that, that information. Okay, um, I'm Isaac. I'm currently on the uh, aerospace engineering course. I feel like part of being an engineer is you hear about it all the time because it's part of our job to look at this thing and improve technology that we have to meet um, up-and-coming standards which hopefully are going to be more enforced. I personally don't consume any news really. Um, I usually hear about it through sort of jokes, friends tell, that's, that's with all news, or I'll hear about it in lectures, uh, specifically climate change stuff. So I think my friends are definitely because one of them he's doing a politics course he's very much conscious of all these things uh, I know that he's vegan I think that's one of the reasons why he's vegan is because of that um, so yeah I, I think generally I think a lot of young people are do know about this kind of thing um, I, I I feel like journalists and media they they go for what they feel will con- uh, resonate with people. So that that sometimes means they'll go for climate change thing. That sometimes means they won't. So I think it depends on the media outlets, um, and I think it also depends on like what else is going on. Hi, my name's Caitlin. Not really. No, I know a bit about climate change, but not really anything else that happens to do with it, kind of thing. Just online, just see whatever's going on online, kind of thing. Don't really ever look into it. It's just whatever pops up on like social media, Twitter. It'd probably be easier if it was more accessible and easier to find. But it's just kind of where do you find it without knowing, kind of thing. I feel like there's lots of different opinions depending on generational gaps. Like I feel like some people don't believe it's really happening but whereas younger people are starting to understand it a bit more kind of thing so I feel like you need younger voices to actually go into it so people actually listen uh hi um my name is Ashley yeah I'm a University of Leicester student I haven't on COP27 but I did on COP26 yeah because like I haven't been uh, updated enough for COP27 due to like uni uni work yeah I do uh, follow a lot on climate crisis stuff and I have a friend who was oh, who's working in like UN for like the COP26 and 27 she went for like all the conferences and like um, has been like advocating for cli- climate change from my country uh, Malaysia uh, UK media I do follow a few people like um, the was it the Harrison brothers I don't remember their names but 
I do get like uh, UK media but not it's like similar it's like balanced in a way it, it helps me to understand more and what we can do to help with like climate crisis and what is the proper procedure to like recycling and what we should and shouldn't do because like uh, everything is about recycling reducing and reusing right now but like the problem with recycling like stuff still doesn't get uh, recycled properly and like so we have to like really separate all our plastics all our like the recyclables correctly to like actually like achieve recycling yeah I would say different people like different way of doing things because like sometimes if you talk to like the older generation they they don't really think climate change is a proper not like I wouldn't say it's not proper but like they don't think it's as serious as like the younger generation sees she sees as that it's actually a thing and everything is going downhill if we're not do like we're not making a change. Hello, Aston. My name is Aston Cosford. First year physiotherapy. I've heard of it. I, I'm not too uh, familiar with what it's about, but I've heard it in the news sometimes. But um, sort of just addressing the fact that there's a lot of people protesting about climate change, sort of thing. Um, but I, I never. I'm not too familiar with what actually goes on though and what's being done about it, sort of thing. Um, I think the way they do it affects quite a lot of people, but it's got to be done in a way that it does that sort of thing. So uh, it's sort of tough to make everyone happy, sort of, with the way they do it. But uh, mainly just like social media, so like Twitter and stuff. Um, not really. I, it just comes up with stuff that's trending because obviously climate change is in the news quite a lot. So that's really how I come across it, sort of thing. Um, yeah, just if, if I wanted to find out more, obviously I'd follow a newspaper or just um, one of the journalists on stuff like Twitter sort of thing so I did want to ask you about the role that social media could play Mm -hmm. Um, I'm predominantly on Twitter and Twitter is going through a very interesting period Mm -hmm. with its ownership and with a certain Mr. Elon Musk and his own political views and that kind of thing. So do you think it's as useful a tool as you think it is? How can we utilize it better to have these conversations? And do you actually think that it is it is our new public sphere? Like people don't stand outside anymore and yell at each other. It's mm-hmm. through our keyboards. Yeah. Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, 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 I think that... that social media in certain circumstances i think social media can perform something that looks the role of something that looks like a public sphere and so in some of my research i've looked at social networks around cops i looked at the madrid social networks and yeah you do find people in there that are having some kind of substantive conversations um, and commenting on what's happening at a cop and i think you would want that you want to have around you know, it's it's you have to have credentials to get into a cop, and those are very difficult to get. So people need to have the ability to comment on it and 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 participate in other ways as well. So social media can play an important role on that. Uh, you know, I, I I'm not early on in the social media era. There was a lot of hope that this was like a great democratizing moment. Everyone now can speak, but I think that now that we're 15 years into it, we now realize that, well, that doesn't mean that everyone gets heard. Mm-hmm. 
And particularly looking at Twitter data around climate change, you see that the people who get heard are either they're huge celebrities. Greta gets heard a lot. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio gets heard a lot. Um, and then large organizations. You still need this kind of organizational heft to some sort of organizational backing to uh, get your, you know, get to, to get make sure that your view gets like amplified. So if you're if you're like a UN agency or or uh, Greenpeace or someone like that, you you yeah you will have some sort of heft in those in those spaces. Uh, so I think, yeah, so social media, like on the whole, I, I don't know if it can be, I don't know if social media can be assessed like on the whole. I think it's too, the contexts are too specific. Uh, Twitter around climate change looks very different than Twitter around Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, right? So these all have to take be looked at in their context. I think there is still, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad we have social media on the whole. I wouldn't want to like, you know, unplug social media if that was even possible to do. Um, but it's, 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 it's not, it's not a panacea for all of our ills. Um, it, it changes things in various ways and, and, and with positives and negatives to that. Yeah. Uh, I just think on an individual mm -hmm. perspective, what are your thoughts on what someone can do? Because I do think the topic of climate change can look very big when you are just one person mm -hmm. uh, and not an organization or a celebrity. Yeah. What can you as an individual do? Um, yeah. I mean, there, there, you know, the, the consumption side of it is something that we're often pushed on the individual, individual level, you know, uh, by, by hybrid cars and, and that type of stuff. And those are, those are important things. Um, I think that we, I think one of the things we can all do just on a very basic level, it's, it seems very basic, but it's actually fairly difficult to do, is just to plug into what's, what's being said out there, what the conversation is. That can be very, very difficult to do, particularly in a highly decentralized media system where there are billions of Twitter accounts and Facebook groups. And, you know, where do you get plugged into that? I think that that's a first step. I'm, I don't believe that information is a panacea to all of our ills, but you do need to kind of be aware of what's being said about that. And then beyond that, I think it's, I think it's just starting to connect with other people around the topic. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes that, that can be helped by a big catalyst. Like I think Greta in Sweden, I mean, there's, it's obvious that she helped catalyze particularly in Sweden and then ultimately around the world, a, a youth movement around climate change. And it's just people connecting with each other because ultimately uh, climate change has to be addressed in a collective way. That's why you have UN negotiations at the top high level. But at the local level, you also need some form of collectivity around it. So I guess plug yourself in to the conversation find other people who are interested in it and start to talk about it and start to find ways together to, to act on it. That it's, it's not, this is a, just like everything else about climate change. It's kind of this amorphous distant thing. And it doesn't, you know, I wish there was like a lever we could kind of pull and like that stopped climate change. But unfortunately we don't have that lever. We just have like people. Mm -hmm. What about as, cause I mean, not to toot our own horns, but we're budding reporters. So to go a step further, 
when we go into these newsrooms or we work for these companies, whether it be in fashion, whether it be working for a magazine like I do, mm-hmm. how do we become better like environmental activists and reporters? Yeah. Yeah. Again, there's no one mode of environmental report reporting um, or, um, but, but I would say that there needs to be a, cons- a consistent deep focus on the structural influences on climate change. Fossil fuel interests need to be studied. Uh, the, 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 um, the structure of the economy makes a huge difference. That needs to be in view. Policymaking needs to be in view. All of that stuff needs to be in that structural focus needs to be in view because that structure is ultimately what needs to change in order to affect climate change. At the same time, there needs to be, the flip side of that is making climate change relatable and experienceable for people to bring that distant problem closer to people in some way. So the structure is really, really important. That still seems distant, but it's super, super important to do investigative pieces looking into that aspect of it. But at the same time, covering people at the local level who are doing stuff and experiencing it at the local level, making it a human problem, which it is, that that's super important. So those are the two, I guess, very broad strands of, of what I see as really crucial journalistic interventions. Do you, what do you think? I agree. I think it's very good, especially for young people, for the subject to be humanized yeah. um, and for them to relate to it in their local communities through family and friends because yeah. then it really pulls at the heartstrings and gets people talking. Mm-hmm. I think also um, on a cultural level, I think you sort of mentioned um, Greta Thunberg, but you also mentioned someone like Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, Culture writing is sort of my thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I'm kind of fascinated between that intersection. Do you think having these, A, do you think it's useful to have these very, very big voices sort of take on the climate crisis as sort of, Um, something to focus on or do you think that sometimes again with social media they can sort of dilute or take away from the conversation because I remember I don't remember I don't think it was this cop but there was a conference a year or two ago and the biggest conversations on social media were about how celebrities got there (laughs) I think everyone was like Leonardo DiCaprio is talking about climate change but he got there in a jet Uh (laughs) do you know what I mean so how useful do you think it is to to sort of give these representatives because I feel like if humans are are we are meant to fail Mm -hmm. and that's just on like a human level Mm -hmm. so I think is it dangerous to assign faces and public spokespeople for a cause where we simply can't afford to get it wrong. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great question. I mean, that's celebrities involved in it become lightning rods for criticism and for, you know, inspiration for some people as well. I wouldn't want to say they shouldn't have a role in it, but um, I think that the thing is, and that happened at the cop. There was some celebrity who came in at the cop and there was a massive crowd of media. And I was like, who is this? And people, people were telling me who it was. I still didn't know who the person <laughs> was, but it was, but they had, it was all, you could tell something was happening there because there was such a massive crowd of people around this one side event. I was like, what, what is it? Anyway, 
So the celebrities will be there, and they, I think they have an important role to play, even though they are lightning rods at the same time. But you bring up this question about who gets to speak for us. That's, again, the, I think the crux of the issue. Who speaks for the climate? Who speaks for us? Um, and... I, I mean, hopefully more of us or most, you know, more of us, more people at the local level, more like everyday people who have important things to say and important experiences around climate change. Hopefully more of them speak and speak with some level of authority and um, ability to to intervene in it. That's what I would say. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you yeah. both for, for, for being here. It was great to have this conversation. I hope it was somewhat interesting <laughs> <laughs> it was very very informative good thank you well you can you can visit my uh my profile on the university of leicester uh, media communication and sociology um web um i have my publications listed there and um yeah that's that's where i would point people to for more information about me. Media and communication at Leicester has been at the forefront of cutting-edge research since 1966, when the Centre for Mass Communication and Research opened. We've been the fastest-growing department of our kind in the UK. Now, in 2023, University of Leicester is in the Times Good University Guide Top 10 for Communication and Media Studies in the UK. Find out more about our media and journalism courses by clicking the link in the show notes.